And I would like you to think with me about being a friend of God. That may seem like an odd idea, but let's chase it out a little bit. I begin to read in verse 12 of John chapter 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. As I began to think about being a friend of God, my memory took me to a time when as a pastor I found myself sitting in a home talking to a man and his wife, <clears throat> inviting them to church. He had, and she too, both professed to be Christians. In the conversation, he kept referring to God as the man upstairs. It seemed that he had a view <clears throat> that the man upstairs owed him something an entitlement idea. And I began to wonder, in his universe, who was God? There was a way to think of God and our relation to God that is too cozy, that is too buddy-buddy. And in this case, as though this man were putting himself in charge of God. He certainly had no respect for God. Secondly, we often think of God as our friend. And that's fair. That's good. He certainly is our friend. That's one of the strongest senses of our relationship that comes through for us. And we have many songs in our hymnal that express the idea of this. I think of one that I love, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. And a line in it says, friends may fail me, my friends. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my savior, makes me whole. Or the song, another one that I love, heaven came down. You know that song? It's great to sing that song or to hear it sung. Oh, what a tender, compassionate friend. He met the need of my heart. Years ago, when I was pastor at Sterling, I conducted services once a week, three times a month at Heritage Hall in Leesburg. And there was in the group that came out to sing or to worship, each of those, it was a weekday, not a Sunday, a weekend. Uh, 
It was a blind black lady. Her name was Lottie Reed. And I would ask her, what song do you want to sing next? And she would give a number. She couldn't read. She couldn't see. She didn't need a hymn book. But that number, everybody else turned to it, was what a friend we have in Jesus. I could count on Lottie Reed to call that number. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. We think of Jesus and our Father God as our friend, and rightly so, with respect, but rightly so. But it is a rare thing for God to call one of us his friend. This is not where he called the man his friend, but tantamount to that relationship. The scripture says in Exodus 33, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Wouldn't you like to hear from God that way? Or King Jehoshaphat of the southern kingdom of Judah was about to be attacked by the Ammonites and the Moabites. And he cried out to God in his prayer, as recorded in 2 Chronicles 20, Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? Abraham, your friend. Now that's Jehoshaphat calling Abraham a friend of God. James says in chapter 2, But the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. But the one in which God speaks of his friend is Isaiah 41.8, and I skipped it. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, in the mouth of God, in the heart of God, you, Abraham, my friend. In the New Testament, we find Jesus speaking of Lazarus as his friend. Lazarus has died. Jesus is beyond the Jordan River in the region called Perea. It's dangerous to go back to the Jerusalem area where Lazarus had lived, but he's going back. And he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. So there's one that Jesus called his friend. But in the passage that we have read, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Would God identify you as his friend? What is it about a person that makes up his character or his person to be a friend of God? One whom God would say, he or she is my friend. Let's explore a little bit.
Here is Abraham. We've mentioned him. Abraham, God himself, says that Abraham is his friend. And as we study the life of Abraham, we can pick out some characteristics. One is when God spoke to him, he knew it was the voice of God. He was living in Ur of the Chaldees among a pagan people, and God spoke, and he knew it was God rather than some other God. He knew the voice of God. If you're a friend of God, you know the voice of God when you hear it. That was an important thing when God's voice commanded him to sacrifice his son Isaac. He knew it was God speaking to him. Secondly, he believed God. He knew his voice, he believed God. The Bible says, then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's in Genesis 15, 6. But such a profound foundational truth that at least three times the New Testament writers pick it up, both in Romans and Galatians and James himself, which I quoted or read a few moments ago. He believed God, and God counted his faith as righteousness. Thirdly, he grew in his relationship with God. It was a slow growth. He had a long life, but he grew in his relationship with God. And God used the challenges in his life to reveal uh, his purposes to him. And the more he had challenged, the more he grew. The more he grew, the more God revealed. And so he grew uh, in his relationship with God. And then he learned, and we need to learn this, he learned to not to turn to the world for solutions to his problems, but to turn to God. Example, when he came on down to Palestine, the land that God promised to give to his people through Abraham, famine comes. He can turn to God for a solution, or he can turn to mankind. He turns to Egypt. It's not the plan of God. He got in trouble for it. Several times he turned to his own solutions or to man's solutions. Got him in trouble. He learned to turn to God and to trust God for his solutions. A fourth thing I want to notice about Abraham as a friend of God that characterizes him as one whom God would say, he's my friend, is that he was obedient. And when you see in the Bible that God speaks to Abraham, Abraham moves immediately. It's an immediate obedience. When God speaks to you and you say, well, I'll get to that. And you say, well, I'm not being disobedient. I haven't got to it yet. You're being disobedient until you are obedient. When God speaks to you, an immediate response of obedience is required. This was one of the characteristics of Abraham. I see also the disciples that Jesus called his friends. The Lord, I, know I call you slaves. For all things that I've heard from my Father, I've told you. Now I call you my friends. Friend of Jesus. We know he's our friend. We have many songs that we sing about Jesus as our friend. I don't know of a single song, and I just may not know, but I don't know of a single song about we sing about us being a friend of him. But we should. We want to be his friend. But here in this passage, in John 15, 12 through 17, I pick up about five characteristics 
that Jesus expects of the disciples who are his friends. Now I'm saying we're not just looking at those disciples back in history. We're looking at disciples like us here today. If you are a Christian, if you're born again, you are a disciple. And Jesus is talking to you. So this is characteristics and expects of you and me. First of all, in verse 12, love one another. And the word is agape. It's not phileo. Not be a friend, be a, a Christian fellowship, a Christian friend. It's agape. Agape is the kind of love that's willing to lay down your life. It's the word that appears in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That kind of love. It's a redeeming kind of love. It's a kind of love that when you give it, it redeems those who are on the receiving end. It lifts them. It, it changes them. It encourages them. It's not just another kind of love. Verses 12, love one another. How? Just as I have loved you. And then again in verse 17, this I command you, that you love one another. I find, it, I find it interesting that he says on the one hand, no longer do I call you slaves, but I command you. <laughs> That's what slaves do is they take commands. He expects both. He expects obedience. So that's the second thing I see Jesus saying to us here in verse 14. Be obedient. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, he's not being manipulated. He is simply saying that a friend of Jesus is defined by being obedient. You have a choice. You can choose not to be obedient. You have defined yourself at that point at least, as not being a friend of Jesus. Thirdly, verse 15. Jesus says that he has revealed to us what he's heard from the Father. Now, to have that revealed to us has the expectation that we will respond to that, that we will act upon that truth that Jesus has given us from the Father. Respond to what Jesus reveals to you from the Father. That's a friend of God. Not just gaining knowledge. Not just passive. But responsive. Verse 16. They had a God-given purpose. You and I have a God-given purpose. To bear fruit. There it is. Jesus said so. One who is a friend of Jesus will be a fruit bearer. And that's what that passage is about. And as you draw your life from the vine, I'm the vine, you're the branches, as you draw your life from the vine, it will happen. You will bear fruit. Second and fourthly, verse 16, fourthly, Jesus appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and the fruit that you bear remains. That is, it has eternal quality. But finally, chapter or verse 16, verse 16, uh, item 5, they not only had a God-given purpose to bear fruit, but they had God-given power to be fruit bearers. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. That's yours. 
Now I think of being a friend of God. I try to apply it to myself. I try to apply it to, in my thinking, this is a great friendship. What is a great friendship like? What happens in a great friendship? With one who is in a great friendship, they desire to be with each other. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as some of you know, I'm sure, was a Lutheran pastor, lived in Germany during <coughs> the rise of the Nazis in power during the 30s, and then during the war in the 40s, and he opposed the Nazis. This Lutheran pastor was even involved in a conspiracy to have Hitler assassinated, but he was discovered and he was arrested in 1943 during the war, as the war, the tide of war was turning against Germany, against Hitler. And he was arrested and put into prison. And he wrote freely, voluminously quite, letters and other papers uh, from prison there in Berlin, at least during that period of time. And particularly as he wrote to his friend, Eberhard Bethke, he kept saying, I'm looking forward to when we can be together again. His friend Eberhard, Christian man, was required to be in the German army on the lines in Italy as the Allies were pushing northward through, uh, through Italy in, that great, in some of those great battles. They desired to be with each other. When you read the Psalms, you read David and the other psalmists, talking about their desire to be with God. Psalm 63, verse 1 says, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. Or the sons of Korah who wrote some of the Psalms 42, verse 1 says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O oh God. There is something so deep in the yearning to be with God. It's not an easy come, flippant, easy go kind of thing. It's a deep-seated yearning. After the, uh, during the Exodus, Moses had led the people out of Egypt and come to Sinai, and Moses is up on the mountain with God, and the people at the foot of the mountain, and they have this episode with the golden calf. And Aaron takes gold from the people and forms it into a golden calf. One of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped was Apis, the bull god. So here it is. God's people are worshipping the bull god in Sinai. God, Moses comes down. There's a reckoning. There's judgment. And Father, and he breaks the Ten Commandments, the, the tablets of stone. And he goes back to meet with God. And God says, I'm going to start over. I'll give, I'll give, I will send, I will go with you. I will send an angel to lead you. Now, most of us would be content with that. I'd say that's pretty good. But Moses said, if, if you're not going with us, I'm not going. He craved the leadership and the presence of God. You can read about it in the 33rd chapter of Exodus. 
One of the things about a great friendship is that they desire to be with each other. Another thing about a great friendship is there is an intimacy about it to the point where even while you desire to be with each other, the communication happens even without words sometimes. An intimacy with God. But I want to tell you that this intimacy with God <clears throat> is not with the disrespect that the man I told you about at the beginning had. There is a respect, yet an intimacy. And the psalmist knew this intimacy. There is a transparency in this intimacy. I try to think of friends in my life. And the one I come up with is my wife. And I hope you can do that with your spouse. Close friends, very intimate. So much so that we know each other. We do talk. But we know, we know the heart of each other in this. In Psalm 32, 5, David says, and here is a transparency in the intimacy. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. And in verse 7, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Isn't that great? To be that intimate with God. The music of God surrounds him. We have this intimacy in many of the hymns we sing. We sang one this morning. And he walks with me and talks with me and tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we carry there. That's an intimacy with God. You know, I'll date myself. Lifeway, what used to be called as Southern Baptist Sunday School Board produces a hymnal every so often, and a new one came out in 1956. It did not have that hymn in it. Those who are the professionals of hymnology said, we don't understand that song. Something about that song, theology is a little strange. I can't fit it into the Bible. What garden is that? That's not the garden of Gethsemane, what is that? And whatever. But there was an outcry from the Baptists, from the people in the pew. And the next hymnal came out in 75, and it had it in it. And every hymnal since then has had it in it. Why? Because we crave that intimacy with God, and that hymn speaks of it. You can't find that garden in the Bible. You can't find some of what's there. Where is that? But you find that intimacy, and you find it right there in your heart. You desire that, and you crave that. Another of the songs I like is one's called All Day Long. All day long, I've walked with Jesus, and it's been a glorious day. I've just moved up one step higher, and I'm walking on the King's Highway. All day long, I've talked with Jesus. It's been a glorious day. It has moved me one step higher, and I'm on my walk along the King's Highway. Intimacy. We love it. And you know, when we sin, and we feel that there is something broken 
alienated in our walk with God. It's that intimacy. We desire to have it back. And we confess our sin, repent of it, and ask God's forgiveness. Yes, and cleansing. Cleansing. The human heart not only wants forgiveness, it wants cleansing. And God gives it by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. God gives it to those who have been redeemed, born again by that blood. Another thing I notice about great friendships, they talk to each other. Isn't that neat? They talk to each other. They share. And Moses in Exodus 33 told about how God talked with him. He talked with God. In fact, sometimes I think Moses got a little bit up with God. And God didn't slap him down. They had that kind of relationship. Now, Moses was respectful. But in Exodus 33, thus the Lord used to speak with Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. And they share. They share their thoughts. They share their feelings. They share their vision. They share life. And Jesus put it this way when he said here in verse 15 of John 15, all things that I've heard from my Father I have made known to you. He is sharing what he's heard from his Father in heaven. Now, the fundamental thing of that is, if God, if Jesus will do that for me, I have a responsibility. I have a responsibility to act on what he has shared with me. I must be true to my friend, Jesus, by being true to what he has shared with me. Another thing I notice about great friendships is that a great friend tries to set forward his friend. He doesn't put him down. He doesn't even just let him be neutral. He tries to lift him, to move him up, to set him forward. You see this with Jonathan and David. Jonathan was the son of King Saul. In fact, he was in line to inherit the throne. And yet he puts his friend David forward. To the extent that David becomes the inheritor of that throne. And Jonathan decreases and becomes, in fact, still a friend of David, but dies in combat. Or what John the Baptist did for Jesus. John said, he who has the bride is the bridegroom but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him greatly rejoices because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. One who is a friend sets him forward. A friend who is a true friend will sacrifice for his friend. And Jesus said it in this passage, where he says, I call you my friends. Greater love has no one than this, 
that one will lay down his life for his friends. That's agape love. That's friendship. Being a friend of God is being like that, a friend of Jesus. And finally, a friend of God like Abraham is defined by his obedience. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, it really doesn't have to be a command. All he has to do is express his desire. And the friend wants to do it. I'll give you an example. A couple years ago, I was in Idlewood on mission with our team there. And I received a phone call on my cell phone from a young lady in Albany, New York. She thought she was calling my home in Winchester. But I had called forwarding, so I answered it there. And, I, and she was saying, we're going to be passing down I-81. We'd like to stop and visit with you on such and such a weekend. And I said, well, I'm not there. I'm in South Dakota. She said, oh. And so we had a good visit and hung up. This young lady was a lady who was a student at Penn State when I was church planning a church there for a year served as campus minister at Penn State and a letter to Christ when she was but 17 years old. Now she's a wonderful, mature Christian woman with four kids and a great family. And I began to think about it. I said, well, maybe Andrea and her family would like to have a place to stay passing down the Shenandoah Valley. So I called her back. I said, would you like to stay at my house? I don't need to be there. You can stay there. She said, yeah, let me, let me talk to Gary and see it. And she called me back. Yeah, we'd like that. And so my neighbor, Doug Applegate, i got to tell you about Doug Applegate. He's a friend. He's the point. He's a friend. He has a feet in my house. If I'm in trouble and let him know, he looks out for me. Now, I don't get in trouble very often, but occasionally I do. <laughs> and he looks out for me. And I said, Doug, I will need to have you go to my house and open the vents up in the upstairs bedrooms so the cool from the air conditioner can get in there and turn up the thermostat so the cool will get all over the house and so on. He said, yep, okay, I'll do that. And he did, and it all happened. And he gave them a key. In fact, uh, their kids intertwined and they played together and so on. He was, he was my friend, taking care of my other friends. I got back from my travels after a couple of weeks beyond Eagleview, and I found that not only had he set the thermostat and opened the vents, he looked around and said, this place needs to be cleaned up. <laughs> and he cleaned it up. He, he looked around and he found the vacuum cleaner. He thought the rugs needed help. And they did. So he helped them. <laughs> he went after it. I didn't need to tell him that. He was my friend. He knew what was needed. And he did it. And a friend of God does that. That's what it means to be a friend of God. Now all that flows out of saying it's defined by being obedient. You see, he loves to do it. He doesn't feel like, oh, I've got to do this. 
He loves his friend. He wants to do it. Now, finally, I want to ask you, we have mentioned Abraham as a friend of God, Moses as a man whom God talked with face-to-face as a man talks with his friend, and the disciples of Jesus, and Christians today are disciples of Jesus. What do these three have in common? There is something. Well, the obvious is they're friends of God. But the obvious, what do they have in common? All three of these in their lives were engaged in carrying out in partnership with God, on the team with God, God's redemptive plan of salvation for all mankind. And if you're not doing that, you'll never be identified as a friend of God. You can identify him as your friend. But he expects you. Indeed, he has said to you, you are on the team to carry the gospel to people who need it. Abraham was the first with the covenant that God gave him. You read about it in Genesis 12, and then again and again and again, down through the years. And Israel was that servant, the whole nation, descendant of God, descendant of Abraham, the friend of God. Moses was leading Israel, a bunch of slaves, out of bondage in Egypt to be a people for God's own possession, to be a nation. The Bible says of priests, but read missionaries. That's what a priest does. That's the point of that. That's the sense of that. That's what Moses was doing. God was shaping this nation, and Moses was the point man for that. He has that in common. And of course, a friend of Jesus, you have it, straight from Jesus' mouth, where he said, as the Father has sent me, just to sit in a pew, that is not why God sent Jesus. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. You know what Jesus came for. Now, you're not going to die on the cross. If you do, it won't redeem anybody, right? It could happen. There are people that are dying for Jesus today. And some of them very viciously today. But that doesn't pay to atone for anybody's sin. But you can carry the message that Jesus brought. You have his spirit living in you. You have his commission. You have his purpose. You have what the Father has revealed to him and he's revealed to you. He said, as the uh, Father has given him a commission, and he says, as you are going, therefore, be making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you all the days even to the end of the age. You have it. And what does he require? A friend of God is obedient, and he's immediately obedient, right on top of it. So are you a friend of God? 
Will you stand up for Jesus? Too many Christians today have bought into this idea. It's kind of a, this plurality idea. Well, you have yours and I have mine. We need to buy into what Jesus is saying. They're lost. We have the good news. We share it. That's where we go. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You know him as one of the great preachers of the 19th century, pastor of the Baptist Tabernacle in London. During 1873, he posted a sermon or he published a sermon. And in the sermon, he had this line. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, it's my prayer that this will not just be words, sermon, experience, but change life change, commitment. Are you speaking to us today? Do we hear your voice? We recognize your voice. Will we be obedient? I pray your spirit to so fall upon us that the answer is yes. Yes, Lord. May we be like Isaiah Here am I, Lord, send me. Here am I, Lord, use me. Here am I, Lord, change my heart. Here am I, Lord, open my mouth. Speak your power, even though I may be fearful and have all kinds of excuses. Lord, I want you to be preeminent. And I set you forward in my life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.